Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And we're here talking about the Nebraska Supreme Court and Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions for the week of January 31st and February 3rd. Oh, Carson, we're almost... I can feel spring. I can see it. I can't feel it. It's I can, a little chilly. It out. is a little chilly. Of course it's chilly, but I can almost feel it. And, I, and, you know, I don't know if you've noticed, but while we're doing this uh, over the past few weeks... Um, I haven't got a cold yet. Oh, yeah, that's true. No illness. Oh, you will know when I get a cold. We've been clear on the waves. Yeah, we're going to do this, and I'm going to have a cold, and people are going to be like, who is Snuffleupagus talking to me in in my earphones? We don't want that guy. Uh, he's going to show up at some point, but we're here today. We're going to talk about some Court of Appeals decisions. There, uh, Last week, you said there was a bevy, more than a bevy. I don't know what that is. A it plethora? was, yeah, I mean, it was just a... Uh, a grab bag of opinions dropped for us today on the doorstep. Grab bag. Some of them good. Some of them, you know, uh, you know, we'll we'll skip through them. Go back to episode one if you want to learn uh, about you know the background of this and why we're here and maybe some disclaimers. But I think we just need to get right to it because we only got point two. Yeah, I think we dive in. Uh, so the first case we have is uh, Hudkins versus Hempel. Uh, it is an appeal from the district court of Seward County, uh, a uh, adverse possession case uh, coming out. And we start out on a bit of a high note. We have uh, a part reversal and a, uh, a part affirmed. Ooh. So, yeah, we start out with a little little controversy there. Um, the uh, gist of what's going on here is... Uh, that the appellant uh, bought this uh, property, which had a uh, old dilapidated fence running uh, through it uh, uh, on one portion portion of the uh, parcel of land. Uh, as most uh, farm ranch people understand, this is a pretty common thing that happens here. You know, this wasn't uh, being regularly used anymore uh, for you know cattle grazing or anything, but it had been used for silage and, and putting hay up and, and things of that nature. So it was kind of sitting over in the corner of this parcel as uh, the best way I can understand it. And essentially what happens here is that uh, this area of land becomes disputed as to what the actual property line is. Uh, the two neighbors, which I, I always enjoy this part, uh, they seem to have a uh, kind of back and forth where one tries to build a fence, the other one says to not build the fence, then the other one comes back in, tries to build their own fence, uh, and eventually, you know, uh, maybe 40, 50 years ago, this ends up in a fisticuff, well, maybe in this one did too, uh, but instead, you know, this ends up in uh, legal jousting, uh, which is, I guess, good for us lawyers, that uh, that's how we do our fighting nowadays. So we start to fight over this property line um, and whether or not it had been adversely possessed. Uh, the district court found that the uh, elements for adverse possession had not been uh, met, uh, taking us back to first-year property. Uh, the elements for adverse possession will run through quick. Are, Lawrence Berger. Yes, Berger. Oh, so would you like to do the... Uh, no, do you no, want to no, get no. quizzed on the elements uh, of adverse possession? I know there's you four. Get one else? It's been a while. So actual, continuous, exclusive, notorious, and then adverse. So uh, it has to be, you know, not under a consent. So I, the, I, I the adverse put, ones always kind yeah, of Yeah, I think yeah. we put two together Yeah, there. they can be the notorious and adverse, but either Lawrence way. Berger and his watch. You never got to experience that, no, did you? No, I didn't have a Berger. I, uh, for first year property, had Duncan, who is still oh, at I had the Duncan College of Law. Yeah, I had him for the second semester. Um, but anyway, it's go Duncan right and Medill now. Oh, uh, Shout out to Professor Medill, should she ever uh, frequent this or hear her name come up. 
<laughs> I didn't mean to sidetrack you. I was wondering whether we needed a cow sound effect for this. Almost. almost? I was close. There was debate about grazing. If okay. that's close no, enough, it's, it's almost uh, a move, no, but it's, it's not a cow case. It's not, not a cow case. Go anyway, right so those are the elements of uh, adverse possession. The district court found uh, primarily here that the notorious piece was not met uh, because that fence had existed there and uh, the purchaser, the appellant in this case, had never uh, sought to actually put a new fence in here or do anything that was uh, notorious uh, so as to give rise to the neighbor or everyone else knowing that, hey, I'm adversely possessing this property. Uh, so the district court finds that it wasn't adversely possessed. Uh, they appeal. It comes up. And here the uh, Court of Appeals disagrees uh, mm. and primarily disagrees as to what uh, notorious means. Um, and, and there's a good uh, discussion, again, on those elements of adverse possession. So I encourage looking at that just because it is kind of a factual question. Um, and here uh, notorious didn't mean, at least from the Court of Appeals perspective, didn't mean that they had to put a new fence in. Uh, it simply meant that he was farming and using the land uh, like you ordinarily would, uh, like the expectation would be that it it would be used and he had been doing that. Uh, they found that the elements for quiet title were met. Um, and so they reversed on the um, issue of adverse possession, uh, said, hey, this was adversely possessed. They uh, affirmed on an issue over uh, some uh, attorney's fees and, and discovery issues. But again, uh, great discussion there on adverse possession, adverse possession and property cases. Those are the things I mean, they've been around so long, but anytime you can get uh, some interesting facts and hear a reversal where it's like, okay, you know, I know the elements I have to meet, but what are the facts that actually meet those elements? I think this is a good case for that. Yeah, good one. You got a fence case. Um, check that one out. Yeah, absolutely. All right. I had uh, Smith v. Romer. It's a dissolution of marriage case, actually a contempt following a dissolution of marriage. Uh, they had a farm operation. The defendant was on the land, and he was going to get $200,000 out of the plaintiff, his spouse's 401k, if he got out of the farm and removed some farm equipment without any damage and paid all the liens and all that stuff by March 15th of 2021. Uh, well, we're here on a contempt, so guess what? He didn't leave, and he also damaged some of the equipment, alleged, well, con I guess proven uh, eventually that he damaged some of the equipment and didn't give all the equipment and didn't pay off the liens. Ultimately, the liens were satisfied. Um, there was a... Uh, claim here by the defendant husband that the he signed this property settlement agreement and uh, he couldn't be willful on this is uh, interesting he couldn't be willful on the contempt because he didn't understand what was in the property settlement agreement his prior attorney um, he alleged did not explain that well enough to him and therefore it wasn't willful it was kind of a negligent uh, by proxy type uh, claim that he couldn't be willful well, uh, the Court of Appeals found that without merit and ultimately decided that the uh, 80-some thousand dollars that they awarded as damages uh, was a proper remedy in the contempt. Um, there is some, you know, standard discussion whenever you look at enough of these, you find that, you know, you got to argue what you assign and you have to assign what you argue uh, in appeal briefs. I think that's another big thing. And I hear there's some things that aren't technically assigned and the court just looked over them. They, I don't think they were necessarily successful, uh, you know, issues potentially, but it does look like um, there are some uh, things that practitioners need to be aware of on appeal and make sure that you're arguing what you're assigning and assigning what you're arguing. And uh, that's it for that one. Okay. Uh, next, we come to uh, State of Nebraska v. Amos. This is uh, a uh, appeal from um, a 
essentially, yeah, what had happened here is Amos enters a plea. He asks to withdraw his plea um, and and says uh, also that his uh, sentence was excessive, so appeals on excessive sentence and uh, ineffective assistance of counsel. The interesting piece here was the uh, fact that he asked to withdraw his plea. District court denied that. Um, here, Amos was charged, which kind of becomes the most important factor here. He was charged uh, with uh, robbery and then use of a firearm to commit a felony. Uh, he alleges that uh, he'd been promised by his attorney that he would be sentenced concurrently and um, statutorily the weapons uh, charge has to run uh, consecutively. And here uh, the court found that indeed the district court did properly advise him that uh, the sentence was to run uh, consecutively, that the court had to do that by statute, and that Amos acknowledged that freely, uh, intelligently, voluntarily, knowingly, on the record, um, that all those things happened and were met, and therefore uh, his plea could not be withdrawn. Uh, the Court of Appeals ag agreed with that, had no issue uh, there. Um, the interesting piece, I guess, um, here was uh, the fact that Again, the court needed to essentially state that on the record. It, it at least sounded like the Court of Appeals didn't say that explicitly, but uh, it sounded like that was kind of the key factor was that the district court had stated that the court had no uh, option but to sentence those consecutively. And so because Amos knew that and acknowledged that on the record, then there was really no issue with the withdrawal of the plea. And, you know, then we don't have to look at if, if there were any extraneous factors that uh, made him enter into that plea. Um, and then just that the right to uh, right for a district court to find um, that a defendant may withdraw their plea is uh, if it would be fair and just, if it is a fair and just reason, and then uh, if it doesn't prejudice the state. So again, it's it's kind of a, it's an abuse of discretion, and it's kind of a, a very much a judgment call as far as if the district court allows that to happen. But I do, I do think that piece is interesting where you have um, a case that has that mandatory uh, consecutive, you know, a lot of defendants get concurrent in their mind, um, and so... Here, the court did did make that on the record and made that clear, and so essentially kept everyone out of hot water, and then uh, the excessive sentence and uh, ineffective assistance of counsel were uh, fairly straightforward. So good, for, uh, great, kudos to the court for Absolutely. doing that. Yeah, and making sure that the record was clear. Wonderful record at, um, at time of plea. And just saved everybody some further discussion there. Anything else on that one? Nothing else. I got Stevenson v. Stevenson, Court of Appeals decision. It's a custody um, case regarding a dissolution of marriage. It involved parenting time, uh, joint custody, and alimony on behalf of the husband who suffered a traumatic brain injury. And um, there's a, obviously these are all very fact intensive, so there's not much legal stuff here. The only legal stuff that I got out of uh, this was, um, which I suppose makes sense, but I, I could think it'd be one of those things that you'd be. Like it'd be four o'clock in the afternoon, you're getting ready to leave, you're looking at your files real quick and you look at it and you go, oh, well, I wonder if that would work. And this says, no, that won't work. So uh, well. <laughs> this is one of those. Uh, uh, this is a, we determined that Nathan's traumatic brain injury is a physical injury to the brain and not a mental illness. Uh, therefore, uh, Nebraska Revised Statute Section 42362 does not apply um, for purposes of alimony. So, um, that you don't know if you don't try though. I know you don't know if you don't try, but th this has uh, apparently been there for a while. Um, but I guess, I mean, I could see an argument that it is, 
Yeah, it's tenable. So I mean, you can try yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's it's try, but it it they're very clear there that that does not apply. Does not apply. And then the parenting time and joint custody was not awarded, and the parenting time was given a lot of discretion to the uh, the older-ish children um, to kind of decide uh, what they wanted for the parenting time with their father, and and the court of appeals was a okay with that on this appeal. Okay. That it for that? Yep. Okay. The next case we came to is uh, In Re, the Interest of Alexander R. This is an appeal from a termination. Um, you know, everything here pretty straightforward as far as out-of-home placement, uh, duration of time, and then uh, best interest of the child. The one piece that I will make note of here that was uh, discussed at length by the Court of Appeals or, or, you know, in fairly depth as far as facts go is the fact that uh, – psychological evaluations had been uh, completed for both parents and that, you know, none of the concerns that were outlined in those had really been alleviated. Nothing had been done to address them. And so again, just from a practical standpoint, I guess, if you get that psych eval, those things are put in the, the case plan. You know, those are things, you know, factually that you want to address, which seems fairly straightforward, but you know, again, the, they almost set the bars that you need to meet. And so if you have those uh, personal concerns similar to, you know, substance abuse, anything like that, you know, if, if it becomes highlighted that, okay, this is a psychological issue that can be remedied, well, then you probably need to start remedying it as, as a parent or, you know, that, that could be uh, one of those grounds that are found for termination. So other than that, it was pretty straightforward. Gotcha. Uh, similarly, uh, straightforward is State v. Uh, Blackwell. It's a plea-based conviction for shoplifting. Um, what Ms. Blackwell did was she, uh, well, she, I, I always want to say alleged, but these have been proven. Yeah, they're facts. They're facts now. <laughs> they're facts. They're just, to us, I mean, they are undisputed. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's an established fact here for the record uh, that she took the uh, this $30 shirt from this company and uh, put it under her shirt and tried to walk out of the door with it and uh, didn't uh, pay for it. And then they, they got caught for uh, theft, and she claimed it was from JCPenney, and everybody from the uh, store was, it was not from JCPenney. But there was, this was right around before COVID, and then there were a number of hearings uh, during COVID, and, and she didn't show up for a hearing, and there were some plea-based convictions regarding that. Again, kudos to the district court here, or county court, uh, rather, uh, because the county court went through all the different levels of uh, shoplifting that she was you know, exposing herself to by pleading no contest to this and uh, further talked about whether she understood everything and there's uh, plea factors. This is this is good here. There's a page here regarding um, whether a defendant's plea was knowing and voluntarily intelligently given and there's a number of factors here that are very good if you have any kind of question regarding whether a plea is valid or not. Those are good. Um, Ms. Uh, Blackwell here, she had 15 prior convictions at a state level for shoplifting, and uh, she had a n- numerous other, and it doesn't say exactly how many, but she had numerous other city theft convictions. She'd previously been sentenced to two years uh, for theft, so we have a $30 shirt here. She ended up getting uh, nine months, yeah, nine months, and then appealed um, that uh, conviction. Everything, yeah, nine months imprisonment. Everything was... Um, affirmed. Um, there were a number of discussions about whether she received ineffective assistance to counsel um, because they, they waived a PSI and other things, but none of that was established on the record. And errors, there were certainly other errors that were assigned that were not argued. And again, errors that are assigned 
and do not match assignments of error in the brief or that aren't fully discussed are going to be ignored uh, by the Court of Appeals. So they got to be assigned and then fully discussed and argued in order for the court to uh, take a look at that. So um, that's pretty much it for that one. The, it was affirmed. It was within the statutory range. So, of course, that's going to be So affirmed. just to clarify for just, just one, the key fact. So stole a shirt from, say, uh, Maurice's and then the, the, the defense was no this is from J.C. Penney's and they're like no way we would never make a, a blouse that <laughs> it was, looks it, like that I, I'm not familiar with this company and, and that's kind of why I didn't say it but Ash and Ash Company I, yeah, don't, no, no, I don't know who no. that is but she said she purchased it at the J.C. Penney and then had it in, in their eye. And they're like, no, that's not our product. Ultimately, the court found, whether it was true or not, I guess that's up for, to higher powers than, than, than we us. have. Yeah, but no, I, we don't I, make those calls. But okay. what was found and established as a fact is that it, it did belong to that place. So. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. I just yeah. thought that was a unique uh, out. No, this is not This is not your shirt. This is, <laughs> is JCPenney's. Almost like they've done it before. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's worked before. Maybe the, knows? well, not the other 15 times. But anyway, um, then we come to uh, Sheehy versus the uh, Nebraska Department of Labor. This was kind of an interesting case uh, just procedurally for me because I haven't uh, seen a lot of this. This was an appeal um, from a disqualification of employment benefits uh, because um, Ms. Uh, Sheehy was dis- discharged from her employment for misconduct. And so the procedure here is kind of the interesting piece. Uh, essentially, she, he is employed as an office assistant graphic designer for uh, this Print Express company. Uh, she uh, gets terminated, Print Express argues, uh, files for, um, files for empl- unemployment benefits. Uh, this the unemployment, the Nebraska Department of Labor initially finds that the un- unemployment um, firing uh, was uh, there, that there weren't grounds for the termination, that there wasn't employee misconduct, uh, print express appeals. Uh, this goes to a tribunal, uh, I guess, which sits for uh, em- employment matters such as this. Uh, Prince has the burden of proof here, proves that uh, indeed, you know, there was grounds, you know, all these different reasons that she was fired for. Then there's a, a second tribunal, essentially, it sounds like is convened almost an appeal from the tribunal. After that appeal from the tribunal, then it goes to district court. And then we end up in the court of appeals. And so other than that, again, it's just fairly fact intensive, uh, but kind of a, an interesting uh, work through, I guess, if you ever have anything where you think you're going to uh, deal with unemployment benefits, denial of unemployment benefits, appealing that, and then, you know, I guess some of the facts and, and work around as far as uh, being, fire, being fired uh, for misconduct go. Uh, but other than that, you know, I don't have uh, much to add because it's a little out of my wheelhouse. Yeah, I got you. No, I had a couple of those too. But um, next one here is In Ray Interest of Austin B. Uh, v. Michelle B. And this is a termination of parental rights, juvenile case. Uh, the children were removed in um, way back in 2018. Um, they got mother ended up with uh, semi-supervised visits at some point, but um, those were reinstated to supervised visits, and then a termination was filed at another point. Um, so um, they ultimately, what happened was uh, the termination of parental rights was affirmed. Yeah, and that's it for that one. Okay, perfect. So now we come to. Um in the interest of Noah P, this is uh, another termination appeal coming out of Box Butte County. Uh, again, fairly straightforward facts here. Uh, sounded like 
mom just had a lot of uh, issues, drug issues, those kind of things, was unable to um, get back on the wagon, do the things that uh, the Department of Health and Human Services were asking. Um, the grounds were met for uh, grounds for termination and then uh, best interests of the child, and the Court of Appeals affirmed. Well, there you go. I got uh, the last one. No, the last one? Yeah, last Court yeah. of Appeals okay. opinion. Last Court yep. of Appeals just, uh, opinion here. This is State v. Lanahan. Line, lining in. Um, basically, here this gentleman was convicted of first degree sexual assault of a child uh, through a plea based conviction. Um, he had two things regarding his appeal uh, excessive sentence and then also speedy trial. Uh, he says, because he kept his uh, attorneys kept withdrawing because they found there were conflicts uh, once they would get appointed to him. And that kind of ate into his six months speedy trial um, was his position that some of the conflict should have been found sooner. Uh, there's a lack of a record regarding um, whether that was a factor or whether that had anything to do with anything um, as far as speedy trial is concerned. Um, one thing that they reiterated that I found to be the, you know, the tiny little nugget here was that uh, six months speedy trial is six months. It's not 180 days. So, um, you know, it's, it's a six month period that you're looking at and then you subtract the days out of that, which I knew, but it's always good to be reminded of those kinds of things sometimes. Six months means six months, not 180 days. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So now we're on to the Supreme Court, right? Yep. Okay. So the first Supreme Court, uh, opinion we have is I'm going to say Hogbin, uh, versus school district. You know, this is kind of a heartthrob case, um, and, and here it is that they say, uh, you know, t tough factual cases make make bad law or, or make tough law. I don't know that we made bad law here, but I'll get on the facts here, and, and I think everyone will know where I'm coming from. Okay. So essentially here uh, is a, a public school teacher uh, that was underpaid uh, for a number of years uh, due to a salary error calculation in the Millard uh, school system. Uh, the school fixes it after they find it at the essentially the start of 2018, and the teacher has paid the correct amount for 2018-19, but was not paid uh, the difference for any of the other years. Uh, this happened because of a uh, provision in the collective bargaining agreement that said that any year, any error found in uh, salary shall be retroactive to the beginning of the year where the error was discovered only, only back to the, the beginning of the year. Uh, so that's what Hogman goes through a bunch of uh, administrative channels, eventually doesn't get any uh, anywhere with that. So sues in uh, district court under the Nebraska Wage Payment and Collection Act. Uh, the district court found for the school on summary judgment. The district court found uh, one that it was out of time and that it worked uh, both ways uh, for the underpayment and overpayment. So there wasn't any issue with the collective, collective bargaining agreement. So if he had been overpaid for that period of time too, they wouldn't have been able to go back and say, you owe us a bunch of money. Uh, it's essentially, you know, it's your loss or your gain. You know, if you get a windfall because of it, great. If you, you know, lose out in this case, that's how it is. Um, the big uh, discrepancy here or whether or not he was covered under the Nebraska Wage Payment and Collection Act Act is whether uh, what he was collecting was a wage. And so they go into the definition of what a wage is. Uh, it is uh, compensation for labor and services. So first, second, uh, it was previously agreed to. And third, all the conditions stipulated have been met. Uh, and the district court and the Supreme Court found uh, that the uh, school district had not previously, so element number two had not 
uh, agreed previously to pay, um, and therefore that had failed. They they had done the opposite in the collective bargaining agreement. They said, if we find an error, we'll pay for that year, but that's it. Uh, they also found that there was a timing issue because uh, Hogbin found out about the issue in April of 2019. So in 2018, he finds out about the one-year salary issue. In April of 19, he finds out retroactively that all these other years had that issue too. Um, and he failed to file uh, a grievance for past years until April of 2020. And there was a 10-day window uh, for a grievance appeal under this collective bargaining agreement and through the administrative channels. Um, And then the Supreme Court also uh, rejected any public policy arguments and affirmed. The reason I said it's kind of a heartthrob case is I think most people would say that, you know, teachers already do quite a bit of work generally for what they're paid. And so it was, it was one of those cases where I was like, man, that really, really stinks for that uh, early on teacher. Yeah, I agreed. Counterpoint, check your checks yeah you gotta pay attention although it is hard and that's what they said the the calculation is difficult because here it was based on how much education he'd had and he'd taken master's classes that weren't exactly counting in and then when you start calculating on the little rubric yeah exactly on their pay scale and so yeah absolutely it was in on on hogman but uh yeah kind of a kick in the shorts either way yeah take a look at that if you got uh, something in the in that Area? The, well, yeah, or in the especially the Nebraska Wage Payment and Collection Act, I I think that you know the little bit of discussion there is is helpful. So, oh, good. I got uh, Bohawk v. Beans Sur- Service Company. Uh, this is a shareholder action, family business. Did a dissolution in the family business after one of the uh, members of the family business passed away. The estate sought uh, sought to dissolve the family business and and get some payment out of that. Um, it doesn't specifically say whether it's, you know, a farming operation. I, I assumed it was, I guess, but I don't specifically know that. Um, there was a previous appeal that, uh, regarding this and that was, went on remand and then they reevaluate everything and they basically it's, you owe this amount of money, these millions of dollars. Um, we all know that you don't cash flow a million of dollars right now. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to set up a payment plan. This is the court. I'm I'm acting like you're the, the court. court. Yeah, I'm no, that was like good. I like that. Yeah, I'm being very colloquial. Yeah, and yeah, acting, no, that's acting good. like the court. Uh, so listen here, James uh, Earl Jones voice, please. <laughs> no, uh, no voices. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to set up a payment plan. You know, you're going to give you a number of years. What? How much time do you think you could do? Can you do this amount of year? And they say okay. So they do that, and then everybody appeals. And then we get back to here and then they went on remand and they set up a different payment plan and then everybody appeals. And here, uh, the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court affirmed gives a lot of deference, I think, to the lower courts on how to manage this. And then uh, specifically found uh, the uh, uh, appellee uh, always argued that there should, or excuse me, the uh, appellant argued that there should be interest um, tacked on to all these huge payments at the tune of 12% interest. Um, and the while there is a statute that does say there should be interest on these kinds of things, they didn't say that the uh, district court was obligated um, to award interest. So that's kind of within a little bit of discretion uh, regarding the district court is whether to make that interest uh, retroactive or even order that interest as part of uh, the dissolution of the family business. Uh, So that's, that's really much all I pretty much all I got out of this is that there's some discretion in the interest thing and that uh, you know shareholder actions are their own little animal and you need to take a look at those. Okay. The final case we have from the Nebraska Supreme Court is Deidre T versus Justina R. This is a, an appeal from the district court order of a uh, continued harassment protection order um, against uh, 
Justina R. in favor of Deidre T. and Deidre T.'s children. Um, Justina appealed based on insufficiency of evidence and then violation of due process because uh, the court had initially heard this as a domestic abuse protection order and um, instead the district court had granted a harassment protection order. Um, so all this comes from the grounds uh, Justina, um, Deidre, and then Deidre's husband all uh, were in some sort of uh, relationship. Uh, it, it says that it was never actually uh, polygamy. They all denied that, but it was some sort of uh, relationship. And so that was where the grounds for the uh, domestic or, or uh, domestic abuse protection order were sought, uh, was this uh, the sexual relations that uh, occurred there. Uh, so a petition's filed um, after uh, Deidre has this breakup, and there's lots of unwanted contact, allegedly, from Justina. Uh, there's a show cause hearing held. Uh, Justina asks for a show cause hearing, and that uh, happens uh, there, the district court hears arguments and is very specific about the fact that the district court is hearing arguments both on a uh, harassment protection order and uh, a domestic abuse protection order. The district court uh, eventually grants the harassment protection order but uh, does not grant the domestic abuse uh, protection order for uh, failure to meet the uh, burden uh, necessary for the domestic part of uh, that um, protection order. Um, at the um, the Supreme Court takes this up and essentially uh, demonstrates a couple of things. One, uh, that the petitioner first has the burden of proof at the show cause hearing to uh, show by a preponderance of the evidence that uh, whatever is being alleged, whether it be the, the uh, necessary harassment or the uh, domestic abuse exists, uh, then that burden shifts to the other party to uh, show that that didn't happen and that the uh, protection order should not be granted uh, here. The district court did a good job of saying uh, explicitly throughout the process that the court was looking at both a harassment protection order and a uh, domestic abuse protection order. The reason that becomes important is because of the fact that the due process uh, claims that Justina now is making, her due process was protected. And so even though there wasn't a separate hearing held on the uh, harassment, the district court uh, stated during these hearings, during these contested hearings, that it was hearing arguments on the harassment protection order. And so Justina had her... Uh, rights protected. Uh, there also is an interesting argument that Justina raises, uh, which is a First Amendment argument uh, about you know the language that she used in some of these text messages and things. But the Supreme Court looks at that and says, uh, you didn't raise that at the trial court level, so we're not going to address that, and uh, does not do anything with that, even though uh, it was kind of an interesting argument. Um, and so here, essentially, the court looks at it, says, uh, yep, no abuse of discretion in granting it, uh, no issue with the uh, due process claims, um, but uh, did find that the burden was not met as to uh, the children for the harassment protection order. So it affirms in part uh, as far as the harassment protection order went for Deidre and then reverses as far as the uh, or uh, modifies as far as to the children. And that is it. All right, that's it. That's it. Hey, we did it. We got to the end. It's another week. Um, ooh, what's this? Nice. Anyway. Classic. Uh, <laughs> classic. There you go. This is Point Two Law Review brought to you by Anderson, Klein, Brewster, and Brandt. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. We got offices in Lincoln, or excuse me, not Lincoln yet, uh, Kearney, Holdridge, Minden, and uh, we're on the World Wide Web. We are. Yeah. Uh, the Al Gore's Internet. Al Gore's Internet, Information Superhighway. Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, Instagram, 
And uh, maybe LinkedIn. Maybe LinkedIn. I don't know. Yeah. We'll, fi- we'll figure it out. That one's shaky. Anyway, thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week. Thanks, everybody.